This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our first story is about a police encounter that did not make the news, involving an Arapahoe County Sheriff's deputy, who's white, and an African-American civilian. Here's some of the 911 call that sparked the interaction. It came in last month, the morning of Tuesday, September 20th. Arapahoe 911, what's the location of your emergency? Um, I just, well, I'm driving right now, but there was a, um, I just got an I-25 going southbound from Dry Creek. Oh, like and just by the RGB parking right there was a black, um, he was a black man, black dressed, carrying a, I assume a rifle. Okay. I don't know if it's nothing or if he's going somewhere to, to do something, you know what I mean? You just don't see guys carrying rifles around anymore like that, you know? So someone called in to report a black man with a rifle. This is near a convenience store in the Denver Tech Center. Arapahoe County Sheriff's Deputy Tom Finley picks up the story. I was just at 7-Eleven taking a short little break in my shift when I heard the alert tone, which is kind of a loud tone that they play over the radio for emergency calls to get everyone's attention. So I heard the alert tone and then they aired a person with a rifle at I-25 and Dry Creek. And I'm like, well, gee, I'm kind of at I-25 and Dry Creek right now. So, you know, I kept listening to the call and got the description of the person, which from the 911 call was a black male wearing black clothing, carrying a rifle of some sort. Um, I was in an unmarked police car sitting at the gas pumps, and I saw that person kind of walking diagonal through the 7-Eleven parking lot. And I'm like, that might be the person that, you know, we're getting the call about. I exited my patrol car, shouted, you know, I believe I shouted, sir, drop the rifle. To be clear, you can carry a rifle in Colorado, correct? That act in and of itself is not illegal. That is correct. So why the, why do you think there was the, the dispatch? I think it's not a common thing to see. And so whether or not it had turned out to be a criminal violation or not, you know, we would determine when we got there. But I think the person that saw it was alarmed by what they saw. The man carrying what appeared to be a rifle wasn't a man at all. It was a woman. And you might recognize her voice. This is Colorado Public Radio News. I'm Joanne Allen. Yes, it was our All Things Considered host, Joanne Allen. But she wasn't carrying a gun. Here's her side of the story. I heard someone say, sir, drop the rifle. And I slowly turned through the golf clubs away from my body and held out my arms and said, they're golf clubs, they're golf clubs. The deputy slowly approached me and with his hand on his gun, prepared, as you might expect, slowly approached me, but when he saw it was golf clubs, he took his hand off his gun. Uh, I think his exact words were, I apologize for challenging you. When we get a call like this, we have to respond. You know, as a skeptical reporter, I was really amazed at how he handled the situation. I was stunned. My heart was racing. I, I didn't quite know what to do next, I totally understood why I was stopped. Because if you see the 
clubs. And we have a photo at cprnews.org so you can see what this this yeah. club in its case looks like. It looks like a gun. I can totally see that. Deputy, do you remember uh, at least reaching for your gun? Yes, I do remember uh, that I had my hand on my gun. And is that part of your training that in a situation that could escalate, you do that? Yes, I need to be prepared in case she did have a rifle and was planning to do bad things with it. And yet, as Joanne tells the story, you were really very calm. Uh, it wasn't aggressive or something like that. To take us into your mind. Um, yeah, that's what I want to know. What were you? What were you feeling? You were approaching someone who might have a rifle. You know, I. That's one of the things we train too is to be calm in crisis situations because. If you're out of control yourself, you're going to do more harm than good. We do a lot of, you know, shoot, don't shoot type of training at the range where, you know, they train the calm into you, basically. Have you been in a situation like this before? I don't think specifically like this one, but I have dealt with armed subjects before. I mean, you definitely fall back on the training when you get into stressful situations. And how stressed were you? I don't recall being specifically stressed during the incident. I'm sure that I was. But afterwards, I definitely remember having the adrenaline dump and everything like that afterwards. What's an adrenaline dump? Well, so after, you know, a stressful situation, during the situation, you have adrenaline that actually helps you function better. But then after the situation, the adrenaline wears off and your heart races and you start getting sweaty. Even sometimes your fingers will, you know, feel a little shaky. I felt something similar to what you felt. It wasn't until after the event was over and after I'd gotten to work here at CPR that I felt nerves and that I thought back on the actual scene several times in my mind's eye. And as the day wore on and by six o'clock that evening, I was really almost not quite a wreck, but I was closer to being a wreck than I had been during our actual encounter. And after the fact, you realize, oh, my goodness, this really could have gone badly. I wonder if that's it for both of you, is that after the situation, you have the room to imagine how differently it could have turned out. I definitely was thinking that. Were you thinking that? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that, too. I was thinking of it in the context of what had just happened the Friday before in Tulsa, the shooting there, because you and I encountered each other the following Tuesday. And before knowing about the shooting in Charlotte, that was the very day that the shooting in Charlotte happened. And this is a white officers shooting black civilians. Right, right. But I never, I never felt a real threat from you. But thinking back later, I felt nervous about it. And Deputy, was that on your mind too, the, the events in this country? In the moment, no. I don't think you can think about stuff like that because you don't want to second-guess yourself in the moment. Joanne? While I was standing there with my arms out, I did think about it. And I thought, oh, is this going to happen to me in Centennial, Colorado? What is this? Is this going to happen to Am me? Am I going to be shot by a police officer? And I have always been taught to obey whatever an officer tells you to do. And so, you know, I was trying to be as calm as possible and did exactly what he said. Now, if you had been aggressive with me, I don't know 
what I would have thought or felt or done. But as a black person, I was definitely thinking about the shootings that have happened in this country recently. Joanne, you say you were taught uh, about how to interact with police. Can you just say more about that? Well, I was taught by my parents. And I think a lot of black kids especially know that they should, no matter what the officer is telling you to do, you should do it. The black community will call on the police when we need them. You know, it's not like the police were always the enemy. But if you are individually stopped by one, then you should be extra careful to do what they tell you to do. I did want to ask the officer the line, I apologize for challenging you. Is that something that you say or is it something you were taught in your training to say? Um, I, I wasn't taught that. And I honestly don't know if I've ever even said it before. Seriously? Seriously. Because when you said it, I thought it was, it, I thought now this guy's been trained well. But it was I think you. It was, I think it was more, it went from being a black man with a gun to being a black woman with golf clubs. And so I was almost feeling bad about having shouted at you. You ever going to carry those golf clubs again? Not the, not in that way. <laughs> no, I, I mean, ever since that instance, I have taken those clubs out of that case. And if I'm carrying clubs, they're going to be, they are clearly seen as golf clubs. Because uh, I, I never know if someone else, not a police officer necessarily, but someone else might want to take the law into their own hands. Do you have any other questions for each other? I have one for you. Okay. Um, when the day was done and you were off duty and you got home, did you tell anybody about what had happened? Yeah. Told my wife about what happened. And even before I went home, I told a couple of fellow officers about what happened. And what did they say? Um, you know, they all were supportive of, you know, said that they thought it sounded like I had done a good job. And I kind of talked more about you know, the what ifs, you know, what if you hadn't complied and, you know, dropped the golf clubs, what I thought was a rifle? What if they had gone really poorly and I had shot you and then found out they were golf clubs? I mean, that was something I talked about with one of my really good friends and how terrible that would have been. Well, I thought, what if he had shot me and... I died. <laughs> and I'm thinking that because my father is 101 years old. And I just couldn't imagine him getting that news. Mm -hmm. Do you think for either of you, is there a lesson here that perhaps would benefit, be it the police community, be it the civilian community, the African-American community? I don't know. Are there takeaways? Just, you know, try to be calm. And if a police officer is shouting at you to do something... Maybe that's not the best time to argue. Uh, you know, follow what the officer's telling you first and then sort through it, you know, after. Sort through it. Because I think one element of this is assumption, right? A lot of it was assumed about the situation before you actually knew what was going on with each other. I didn't get to drive there thinking about, okay, what am, how am I going to 
approach this person. I didn't get a drive there with my lights and my sirens on, which gets, you know, the adrenaline up and everything. It was just like, oh, hey, right there. You know, I, I guess I guess I should go talk to that person. Because also and, lights and sirens would have scared the person you're going after, too, which yeah, could have made right. me, could right. have gotten me amped up. Yeah, you're right. I mean, if, if you're just walking and I, I come, you know, coming up to you with my lights and my sirens on and stop right in front of you or right behind you or something like that, you're right, that would... I would have been a, a lot more afraid. Exactly. Deputy, did Joanne's race ever enter your mind? Only to describe her, meaning the call came in as a black male. So I was looking for a black male. That was the only way it played any, any role in my response was just, who am I looking for? I do wonder if it had been a white person carrying the golf bag. If, if it would have been interpreted any differently? I don't think so. Um, maybe by the person that called, but I don't believe so by me. I believe I would have reacted the same way, just would have been looking for a different person. I was wondering if this changed you in any way? I don't think so. Joanne, did it change you? I don't think so either, except to be grateful that I can have an encounter with a police officer that goes well, even though I did have something, I looked threatening. Deputy Finley, Joanne Allen, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you, Deputy Finley. Thank you, Joanne. Joanne Allen is host of All Things Considered on Colorado Public Radio. Tom Finley is a deputy with the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office. They talked about their encounter last month. There's a picture of them and of Joanne's golf clubs at cprnews.org. Coming up, could Colorado's voting system be rigged? Has it ever happened? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One big headline from the final presidential debate is that Republican nominee Donald Trump said he may not accept the results of the election. Throughout the campaign, he has suggested the system is rigged against him. Here he is at a rally in Wisconsin. They even want to try to rig the election at the polling booths. And believe me, there's a lot going on. Do you ever hear these people? They say there's nothing going on. We wondered if it's possible to rig an election in Colorado. Nathaniel Miner from CPR's digital team looked into that for us. Hi, Nathaniel. Hi, Ryan. And has an election in Colorado ever been rigged? Well, there have been some proven cases of voter fraud in Colorado, uh, but they've always been kind of small in nature. Uh, So in 2013, Colorado's Secretary of State at the time found about 150 potential cases of illegally registered voters. But turns out only one of those cases ended in a conviction. So for perspective, there are a little more than 3 million registered voters in the state. Uh, So what Trump is talking about is really kind of systemic shenanigans that could throw the whole election. And that would be really hard to pull off, to cast enough fraudulent votes to swing the election here. Why so hard? Well, uh, the election is run by both states and counties. So first of all, it's decentralized. Uh, And second, each county has its own protections to prevent fraud, and the state does as well. It starts when you register to vote. And do you remember when you did that? 
Um, it was so long ago. I don't, I don't quite remember, actually. Right. So when you did, you either signed a paper form or you did it online at the Secretary of State's website. Okay. If you did it there, the state pulled a copy of your signature from the, your driver's license. And these signatures are then collected in a signature database. And that's super important, especially since Colorado moved to an all-mail ballot system a few years ago. Yeah, this is the first presidential election in which all of Colorado's registered voters get a ballot in the mail. Right. So back in 2013, Democrats pushed through a bill that transformed the state's election system. Now every registered voter is mailed a ballot, and you'll probably get yours this week. Already got it, and uh, I noticed it came from Denver County. Right. So this is where counties come in. Uh, they check with the state and the U.S. Postal Service to get the most up-to-date addresses. Then they send out ballots. The ballots themselves are anonymous, but you've got to sign the envelope. And once you've returned by mail or drop or at a drop-off center, an election judge compares the signature on the envelope to the signature in the state's database. And if they don't match? That does happen sometimes. So let's look at 2014. That year, the state found thousands of ballots where the signatures didn't match what was in the state's database. And when that happens, the county clerk will contact the voter and try to sort it out. So it's a mistake sometimes? Right. So usually um, what I heard a lot was a a spouse will sign their partner's name, for instance, Mm -hmm. not realizing that it's a sworn, sworn affidavit and it has to be the person whose name is on the ballot. So in 2014, many of the ballots were able to be counted uh, because the clerk sorted out the issue. Ultimately, about 8,000 of the nearly 2 million mail-in ballots were not counted. The signatures didn't match and the issue wasn't resolved. Does that mean it was fraud? Not necessarily. Uh, it, uh, It doesn't mean it was intentional. It could be that a voter just didn't respond to questions from the clerk. Okay, so we talked about how counties and the state can stop vote rigging, uh, as Trump is talking about, through mail ballots. But what about in-person voting? Yeah, so a relatively small number of Coloradans, about 5% in the last election, still prefer to vote in person. Maybe they really want that I voted sticker. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so they still have to present a valid ID. Uh, It's a driver's license, a passport, or a copy of a utility bill to vote at their local polling place. And this is one area that the Secretary of State, Wayne Williams, is still worried about. People can register to vote on Election Day, and they don't necessarily have to show a photo ID. So Wayne Williams spoke with our Megan Verlee about this just a few months ago. There is a risk, and we've seen some instances of this happen, uh, where an individual does not actually live at the address they claim at the time they walk in, same-day register, and then immediately vote without having to show any type of photo ID. So Williams is pushing for a bill that would require a photo ID for same-day registration. Okay, for a same-day registration. Uh, In general, though, experts say the more general ID checks uh, make this type of voter impersonation fraud very rare. A big research project found 10 cases of voter impersonation nationwide since 2000. And none of those affected the outcome of an election. It sounds like it would take a lot to rig voting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, It kind of comes down to this. You'd need a big team of people to cast enough fraudulent votes to throw a whole election. And the more people you need to pull off your caper, the harder it is to keep it a secret. Could the books be cooked after the votes are cast, though, like uh, in the counting process? Yeah, uh, it would be really hard to pull off. Okay. Uh, Remember how counties collect votes? Uh, They also count them, too, uh, on a computer system that's not connected to the Internet. So someone could not hack this system remotely. And there's a separate system for each county. Uh, The only people who have access to the system are election judges and officials who have passed CBI background checks. And 
On top of that, the tabulation computers track who's access what information down to every keystroke. Every keystroke. Yeah. Um, who keeps those judges and officials honest, though? So election judges are recruited by members of the political parties and by counties. Uh, then there are the poll watchers. And these are people also chosen by parties who are specially trained to watch the whole process. And the system works because there are enough people from both parties that they can keep each other honest. Uh, they're there when votes are cast and then during the counting process as well. Okay, you mentioned a concern from Secretary of State Wayne Williams earlier. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out that he's a Republican in charge of Colorado's voting system, and he's one of several Republican election officials in the swing states that Trump would need to win the election. Overall, is Secretary of State Wayne Williams concerned about widespread voter fraud in Colorado? No, he's not. And he said this week that, quote, uh, while there are occasional instances of voter fraud, Colorado's processes are very good at catching attempts to commit voter fraud. What happens if someone is caught and actually convicted of voter fraud? Uh, yes. So committing voter fraud is a class five felony, and that means up to three years in jail and up to a $100,000 fine for each offense. And like I said before, there have been a few proven cases of fraud. Earlier this fall, CBS4 found some instances of dead men and women voting years after they died. The Secretary of State's office reviewed their files and found 78 dead voters who were still eligible to vote. Uh, they've since been removed from the voter rolls. And in perspective, that's 78 people out of about 3.1 million registered voters in the state. So all in all, have we seen any evidence of it happening on a scale big enough to sway the election here in Colorado? No, we haven't. And from a national perspective, you'd have to pull it off in multiple swing states to throw the election for either Trump or Clinton. Uh, I will say that Trump's own campaign, campaign manager says she doesn't think there will be widespread voter fraud, despite that, as you know, Trump said last night he may not accept the results of the election. Trump's talk has made some people nervous. Yeah, uh, he's asked his supporters to watch polling places. And there's also threats of violence or even violence at some party offices. And that's contributing as well to these nervous feelings. Um, just last week, um, the Republican Party headquarters in North Carolina was firebombed. To be clear, you said uh, this um, about Trump wanting people to watch polls, but there are official poll watchers, right? Yes, exactly. Um, they're certified by political parties, unaffiliated, and unaffiliated candidates, and people on both sides of ballot measures. Thanks, Nathaniel. You're welcome, Ryan. That is Nathaniel Minor, who is on CPR's digital team. We put a call out to Colorado voters, specifically to those who don't plan to vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. And we heard from quite a few of you leaning towards Libertarian Gary Johnson and the Green Party's Dr. Jill Stein. Some voters turned to a third party a while back, like Joanna Zook of Longmont. She says she left the GOP in 2008. Military interventions abroad made her libertarian. For others, this will be their first time casting a ballot for a minor party. That includes longtime Democrat Cleo Diolitis of Denver. She was a delegate this year for Bernie Sanders. But when he didn't get the nomination, she switched to the Greens. She says she'll vote for Stein because of her positions on trade and universal health care. Tim Coonan of Denver says he'll vote for Johnson and pushes back against the idea that a third party vote is a waste. I think you're throwing away your vote if you're not voting for who you want. The lesser of two evils is still evil. We also heard from Erin Doherty of Denver, a recent high school graduate. This will be her first time voting in a presidential election. Doherty felt the burn in the primary but says, quote, Jill Stein is the only person left in the race who really represents my values. 
And Patrick Albright of Wellington is a former chairman of the Larimer County Republican Party. He says he wants to see more constitutional restraint from a president. So he thinks Johnson is the person to do it. We'll have much more with third-party voters next week, Wednesday to be exact. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A Nazi Facebook group made up of high school students in Boulder has caught the attention of anti-hate groups. The page was revealed after the young man who led it committed suicide. Scott Levin is with the Anti-Defamation League. He's based in Denver. Levin says after years of decline, cases of anti-Semitism in Colorado have doubled over just the last year. Scott, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Good to be here. What do you know about this group of high school students in Boulder? Well, Ryan, what we know uh, has been in the media of late in the last few weeks, but it appears that several months ago, a group of Boulder area high school students, perhaps up to 15 of them, participated in a closed chat group on Facebook that they called the Fourth Reich. Okay. And uh, the leader called himself the Fuhrer, is that right? Yes, the leader gave himself the name the Fuhrer, and for other participants in the group that he deemed worthy, he gave them other titles uh, of Uberfuhrer and Underfuhrer and Oberger, just different names that had been used by the Hitler SS um, in order to give titles to these people that participated. And what kinds of things were they posting? They posted the most vile, disgusting things. From what we've seen of the... uh, chat group. Uh, Most of it was against Jews, against African-Americans, and against Mexicans. They actually put on such things as uh, to kill the Jews or to put down certain people. Um, So it was very ugly, vile words. And what about the suicide? The suicide of the leader, as best we know, um, he he committed suicide. He did make um, some statements on the chat group as well. And from what we understand, though, unfortunately, um, as he identified it, both on the group of his depression and the fact that um, we understand that his father actually had died a month or two before in a plane crash. Hmm. So these were these were some troubled kids and also just other kids that were playing along with a very, very bad, bad joke. I understand that you've been in touch with uh, the family of a student who was targeted by the group? Yeah, we do not in any way represent that family. Um, they they have their own positions and their own thoughts on the matter. But um, we had been contacted initially a, uh, about a week and a half or two weeks ago. Is this a Jewish family? It is. Okay. Five students from Boulder Prep were reportedly expelled from school. Is there any evidence that this group posed a serious threat to students? Well, for us, uh, we aren't in the business of analyzing what that threat is. What we wanted to make sure was that law enforcement had been involved. And as we understand it, law enforcement looked at the Facebook chat group page, talked to the family that had brought forth the issue to us and to the police. The same family. The same family, Mm -hmm. and then went and interviewed several of the students. They made the determination that there wasn't an actionable threat such that they could uh, charge someone with a crime. Were there any restraining orders sought or anything like that? I only know from what I've seen through media press that the family that had originally contacted us did get a restraining order against one of the kids. So your group, the ADL, just put out a study that documents an uptick in anti-Semitic messages on social media. I guess many targeting journalists. What what are you seeing? Yes, we just released uh, the first of its kind study, which does 
reveal that Jewish journalists or journalists that are thought to be Jewish or perceived to be Jewish have been the targets of very ugly anti-Semitic rants. Um, and over the past year, this has really gone up a lot during the election cycle. As I understand it, 2.6 million tweets were looked at. Out of that, close to 19,000 of them, after going through and evaluating them for the language that they used, were truly anti-Semitic type posts that had gone on. And, and something like 83% of these were sent to 10 national journalists primarily and a lot of it in response to things happening in the presidential campaign. So is it your sense that the numbers of, of these acts, of, the, of this kind of speech, is, is going up? Is it that you're paying closer attention and monitoring it more? Uh, is I'm, it simply that Twitter is playing such a huge role in this election? Well, I think that as it relates to Twitter, I don't think anybody's ever measured it before. We, The Anti-Defamation at least not in this depth, the Anti-Defamation League has been measuring anti-Semitism since the mid-1960s. Anti-Semitism overall has gone down over time. Um, no question about that. But we've seen a real strong uptick that's taking place here locally in the Colorado area. Yeah. While we have not yet finished the year out, we think that there have been tremendously more reports that have come to the ADL of incidents of anti-Semitism and other incidents of hate that have gone on as well. Specifically, as it relates to the report we just released about Twitter, Twitter has become sort of the uh, modus of communication in today's age, especially around news and politics. And so a lot of people have the ability to reach out directly to a reporter and to tell them what they think that they might not have been able to do in the past. You've made several mentions of the connection you believe between these uh, acts and the presidential race. Would you say a bit more about that? Sure. I think that we've all witnessed that the language and the discourse that's been going on in national politics has been a little bit more challenging at this point in time. Certain uh, words are being used to describe people that we haven't heard in a long time, at least not on uh, television and in the media and in print the way that they have been. Words, uh, I, I don't want to be off color, but words that you could use here as an uh, example? Or? Some of them, but I think that there's also been a, a greater focus on uh, minor, people of color mm -hmm. um, that are going on, uh, attitudes towards African-Americans, towards Latinos, um, and towards um, Jews have been expressed in ways that we haven't heard in a long time. We don't think that that's due to the – in any way that, for instance, um, Donald Trump and his campaign, I don't think he is in any way condoning this type of language that's going on from people who are sending these types of tweets that are, that are out there. But we're finding that a lot of the people who are sending these tweets are actually people who have identified in their profiles – on Twitter or otherwise, that they are um, supporters of either um, Donald Trump or of the alt-right or of other areas of uh, uh, at this time. We're joined by Scott Levin of the Anti-Defamation League. If you look at the demographics of this country, uh, white Christians no longer make up a majority. Is this a broader issue of uh, perhaps some white folks feeling left behind? Well, I think that that could be an explanation for it. Certainly what's going on at this point in time is, is we've sort of devalued the respect that we've had for other people. 
we are a very diverse country that's there, and I don't think anyone at all is promoting a form of colorblindness or that we ignore the fact that all of these differences occur. Instead, we think that this is the time people should be having respect for one another. And unfortunately, as this discourse has gone on, um, especially in the national elections cycle that uh, we're currently in, um, there's been some question as to whether or not everyone feels that respect. And that could be the white people as well as the people of color. Mm. I also wonder if it's a, a function of the Internet age itself and the anonymity and the distance that that provides. Certainly. What, the Anti-Defamation League was very involved in the 1950s in the unmasking laws that really helped to diminish the impact of the Ku Klux Klan. In other words, we believe, because we're a First Amendment organization at our heart, you should have a right to speak, even if it's ugly or hateful speech that's there. But you shouldn't have the privilege of doing that anonymously. So there are certain laws that were adopted that, for instance, people couldn't wear a mask over their face. Um, and that helped to bring down the Ku Klux Klan. Today, people can use the anonymity of the Internet or, or other forms of communication like Twitter that they might do anonymously in order to hide who they actually are. You're saying social media is the new white hood in some regards? Uh, social media can be used that way. Let's uh -huh. hope not. It can also be used for a lot of good as well. You've been working in the Boulder schools, to go back to the, the local instance we started with, to fight these sorts of hate groups and that kind of hate speech. Is this a sign you need to do more? It absolutely is a sign we all need to do more. The Anti-Defamation League is very proud. We have one of the longest standing anti-bullying, anti-bias programs in Colorado called No Place for Hate. We're in about 50 schools. We think that reaches about 50,000 students. And it's really about changing it from a culture of hate to a culture of respect. But it is, like all things in changing culture, something that takes place over a period of time and something that we all have to redouble our efforts to do. What's the role of parents in this? It's very strong. I think that uh, parents uh, play a very big role in influencing their children. Um, but I'm also noticing that in today's world, especially with the Internet and other things, children may not be quite as dependent on their parents for their sources of their feelings about what's going on in the world. Everything is accessible to all of us at all times. That is to say you could have a parent who does not embrace hate, but that the child gets that message through other channels. Absolutely. Uh, it certainly, it can be part of the environment within which the child lives and, and goes to school, but he also has his friends, his teachers, his parents, the internet, and the untold millions of resources that he gets by going online at any given moment. What's interesting about this is uh, it's happening in a concert with the, the conversation about the internet as a radicalizing tool. Is, is this another dimension to radicalization, a, a sort of uh, a, a different part of that conversation, which has often focused on Islamic ra radicalization? Yeah. It, it cer certainly could be. I mean, these are, again, the ways that people are in community with each other has changed. They now can do it online from an Anti-Defamation League, ADL perspective, we're really the proponents and creators of the pyramid of hate. It starts with language. It starts with name-calling. It starts with bullying. And it can work its way all the way up to being something much, much worse. That is Scott Levin. He is Mountain State's Regional Director for the Anti-Defamation League.
Hearing from you, our listeners, means a lot to us, and we share your feedback from time to time in Loud and Clear. Lots of response to my interviews with U.S. Senate candidates. Republican Daryl Glenn was on last week, and Daniel Boyd of Denver emailed us to say he's voted Republican for four decades. But after hearing Glenn's on-again, off-again support for Donald Trump, he's unsure whom he'll vote for in the Senate race, but he says it will not be Glenn. Boyd is not a fan of Trump and calls him a disgrace. Robert Reinerson of Denver, also a registered Republican, emailed. He said he was leaning towards the incumbent, Democrat Michael Bennett, until he heard the Glenn interview. Now, he says, I'm feeling like Glenn deserves my vote for keeping his cool through question after question about Donald Trump. Please, less Trump-Clinton kerfuffle. I spoke with Glenn about energy and what he sees as Cole's role. Glenn opposes President Obama's clean power plan to combat climate change, saying he doesn't want to, quote, pick losers and winners in the energy mix. Glenn says policymakers must consider the economic effects of climate change deals. Here's a bit of our exchange. Some would say that's a false choice. In other words, if sea levels are rising and cities are being inundated, you're not going to be necessarily worrying about what kind of soup you buy that night. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, is it a little bit of a false choice to say we have to weigh, you know, the future of the planet against uh, potential economic impacts if you steer clear of coal? Well, here, here's, a, here's my response to the false choice. You need to come with me to Route County or to Moffat County and talk about real impacts of people that are their livelihood is being shut down and they're having to pay bills right now. This is where, uh, where and, there's a lot of coal. Yeah. And tell them that's a false choice. That prompted Mitch Roberts to get in touch. He's an electrical engineering major at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. He thinks it doesn't make sense to push the U.S. to go fully green if countries like China and India are still burning lots of coal. China consumed 3.8 billion tons of coal in 2011, according to the Energy Information Administration. It is a fact that if the U.S. shut off 100 percent of the fossil fuel energy in this country, that the world would still continue to warm up. Mr. Glenn is being silly about global warming not being caused by the introduction of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. But to think that the U.S. is the largest or most significant contributor of those gases is also silly. Daryl Glenn's Democratic opponent, incumbent Michael Bennett, was also on the show to talk about a range of issues. One that he and Glenn disagree on is the Iran nuclear deal. Bennett supported it, despite his distrust of Iran. I didn't trust them when we did the deal. I don't trust them now. But it's hard for me to see when we're dealing with the lethal conventional threat that Iran poses in places like Yemen, southern Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon that we're not better off having put the nuclear program at least um, on ice for now. John Ely, via Twitter, responded that Bennett's stance is psychological delusion. We haven't just focused on candidates, but on ballot measures, too, debating many of the statewide initiatives. That includes the Colorado End-of-Life Options Act, or Prop 106, which would make medically-assisted death legal in the state, During our debate, I asked a proponent, why invest energy in this proposal and not in making palliative care, that is, care at the end of life, better? Listener Bart Windrum of Boulder takes issue with that question. Over my 14 years' involvement as a civilian in end-of-life reform matters, I've come to understand the deep error that posing this question represents because it's actually blaming the victims. Aided dying proposals 
are a logical grassroots citizen response and the only end-of-life medical reform civilians can enact, the only sure pathway to dying in peace in the face of systemic odds against dying in peace. In advancing aided dying, proponents deny no one the freedom to work for any other improvements. Those who may lament that the effort, quote-unquote, sucks all the oxygen out of the room can really breathe as much as they want by advocating for any other needed medical reform. Finally, our conversation with CU Boulder history professor William Way about his new book, Asians in Colorado, drew this comment from Terry May of Boulder. The discussion helps remind us that even the Wild West was built by waves of many different immigrants. Early Asian immigrants faced the additional challenge of racism, sometimes subtle, sometimes extreme, as in the Denver race riot of 1880. The internment camps of Japanese Americans at Amache was in many ways simply the culmination of anti-Asian racism and policies. May continues, Coloradans can at least be proud of the moral courage of Governor Ralph Carr and his rebuke of those attitudes and policies. Thanks for bringing this history to light. History should help guide our way forward. Your feedback helps guide us, so keep it coming. There are all sorts of channels to reach us. Facebook, we are CPR News, Twitter, at Colorado Matters, and through CPRnews.org. You can either click contact at the top of that site or comment beneath individual articles. We'll be right back. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A Colorado Springs woman wants to make history this election by becoming the nation's first transgender member of Congress. Misty Plowright is taking on Republican Representative Doug Lamborn in a conservative district. But as CPR's Vic Vela reports, Plowright doesn't like hearing about the long odds. That's because Misty Plowright has spent her whole life fighting the odds. I was never supposed to amount to anything. I came from a broken home. I came up dirt poor. I should have been in jail or dead by the time I was in my mid-20s. I'm trans. She says she attempted suicide several times because of her gender identity struggles. I barely graduated high school. I never attended college. This is not the first time I've had to overcome seemingly impossible odds. Those odds turned in Plowright's favor when she left Arkansas and served in the Army as an information systems officer. Later, she worked for Microsoft in Seattle, which at the time was her lifelong dream. But she ended up following a friend to Colorado 11 years ago, who was also going through the gender transition process. Now, Misty Dawn Plowright is running for Congress in Colorado's 5th Congressional District. Her decision to run was largely inspired by Bernie Sanders. He showed that, you know what, you can, you can run an honest campaign, you can be ethical, you don't have to sell out. Plowright is upfront about being a transgender woman. She's also honest about something else that piques curiosity. She's in a polyamorous relationship. She's married to a woman, and they share a bed with a male partner. Plowright wishes more politicians would be as upfront about their personal lives. Here's who I am, and you can probably trust that I'm not going to lie about crap, because if I'm not going to lie about this, what the hell would I lie about? Plowright's candidacy is being heralded by folks like Daniel Ramos. He's the executive director of One Colorado, a nonprofit LGBTQ rights advocacy group. 
One of the things we know is that only one in 10 people in the United States know someone who is transgender. So the more that we can introduce transgender people um, to all people across this country and the more that uh, people can meet Misty as an, a transgender candidate is a huge, huge win. Plowright defeated her opponent in the Democratic primary by 16 points earlier this year. But the general election will be a whole other ball game. The district primarily consists of Colorado Springs and is very conservative. It's been Republican the whole time, and the whole time the Democrats have had difficulty recruiting good candidates to run in the district. That's Bob Levy. He's a retired longtime political science professor at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. He says the 5th Congressional District was drawn in 1970 to favor Republicans. Congressman Doug Lamborn did not want to comment for this story. He's held the seat since 2007, and no Democrat has garnered more than 40 percent of the vote in any challenge he's faced. Levy doesn't think Plowright can overcome history, and he thinks Plowright knows that. I think quite frequently people run for office with a different motive than winning. Uh, People run for office sometimes to dramatize an issue or to uh, present a new set of ideas. Hey, good morning. Welcome to the Jeff Crank Show. This is how conservative talk show host Jeff Crank introduces himself to listeners in the Colorado Springs area. He's twice challenged Lamborn in Republican primaries. Crank says he doesn't get a lot of people calling in to talk about this race because it's viewed as an afterthought. He thinks Plowright's candidacy, as well as that of another transgender woman who is running for Congress in Utah, is a publicity stunt. Let's put up two transgender candidates Uh, as Democrats, in seats that don't really matter, and we know the Democrats not going to win. But Plowright insists that's not what her candidacy is about. And her transgender identity isn't what voters want to talk about either. A lot of people don't like identity politics. They want to know what I think about taxes, about guns, about property rights, about jobs, about veterans issues, about health care. Plowright is well aware of the odds facing her. But when she's asked about those odds, she refers back to her previous suicide attempts. Trans people don't live long. I think the statistic is something like half of trans people have attempted suicide at some point in the past. And I'm in that group. Plowright says the fact that she's still alive proves she's already beaten the odds. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. Ballots hit the mail this week. Maybe you've already received yours. There are lots of initiatives to vote on this time, and we want to answer your questions about them. Are you puzzled over a proposition, angsting over an amendment? Email us, and we'll put our team of reporters and producers on the case. News at CPR.org. Your questions to news at CPR.org. Finally today, something other than the election. The great modern choreographer and dancer Martha Graham premiered her work Appalachian Spring more than 70 years ago. It's about a small American town celebrating a newlywed couple. The ballet is freshened up this weekend when Denver's Ballet Ariel performs at the Cleo Parker Robinson Theater. Director Alina Norton says her version is a departure from Graham's. This is really a ballet. It's danced on point. And it has a lot of um, classical movement in it, you know, versus Martha Graham was a great modern dance pioneer. So the ballet that she did was based on modern dance. The piece is set to the music of Aaron Copeland, whom Graham enlisted.
play Ariel performs Appalachian Spring this weekend at the Cleo Parker Robinson Theater in Denver. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us.